Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the game of speculation. We are so excited to welcome our guest for this episode, Dr. Regulus Allen. Dr. Allen is an associate professor in the English department at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, where she teaches restoration and 18th century British literature, British romanticism, and African-American literature. Her current book project, Vacant Spaces, Imaginings of the African Woman in British Literature, 1688 to 1838, explores representations of African women in English travel writing and fiction, from the introduction of Imoinda and Afrobens Orinoco in 1688 to the end of British slavery in 1838. She also contributed a chapter titled Speculation in Mansfield Park to the book Approaches to Teaching Austin's Mansfield Park and has presented at the Southwest Chapter of Jasna from Hampshire to Hollywood, Teaching in Austin Fiction and Film Course. Welcome, Regulus! Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And we are so excited to talk with you. So we are going to set the scene here for our episode. We are basing our conversation in Mansfield Park, and we're about halfway through the novel. The Bertram family, minus Julia and Mariah and Rushworth, are playing cards after a dinner party at the Parsonage. Sir Thomas, Mrs. Norris, and the Grants are playing whist, while Lady Bertram, Fanny, William, Edmund, and the Crawfords are playing speculation. Lady Bertram and Fanny don't know how to play, but Henry Crawford is here to save the day and promises to teach them both the rules of the game. Don't worry, ladies, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) So here it is from the text. It was a fine arrangement for Henry Crawford, who was close to Fanny and, with his hands full of business, having two persons' cards to manage as well as his own. For though it was impossible for Fanny not to feel herself mistress of the rules of the game in three minutes, he had yet to inspirit her play, sharpen her avarice, and harden her heart, which, especially in any competition with William, was a work of some difficulty. And, as for Lady Bertram, he must continue in charge of all her fame and fortune through the whole evening. And, if quick enough to keep her from looking at her cards when the deal began, must direct her in whatever was to be done with them to the end of it. He was in high spirits, doing everything with happy ease, and preeminent in all the lively turns, quick resources, and playful impudence that could do honor to the game. So he's he's pretty much directing the whole game himself. Henry Crawford's having a great time. He's loving life. And throughout the rest of the chapter, we get just a lot of conversation particularly about Edmund's future home, Thornton Lacey, interspersed with this occasional commentary on the gameplay that's happening. So, Regulus, can you start us off just by telling us about the game of speculation? Like, how does one play speculation? What are the rules of play? Well, I'll start that speculation was probably first played in England at the very end of the 1700s. So the Oxford English Dictionary was first recorded usage of speculation as a name for a card game 
was in 1804, in another of Austen's works, her unfinished novel, The Watsons, which she was writing in 1804. But the word appeared in print even earlier in the 1800 London edition of Hoyle's Games Improved. Hmm. So Edmund Hoyle was born in 1672. Um, He was an English author of several books on the rules of card games. And in the 1740s, he worked as a whist teacher for upper-class families. Yeah, nice work if you can get it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And he published a treatise on whist in 1742, and he went on to publish many books on other card games. And his works were widely distributed and pirated long after his death in 1769. So he dies six years before Austin was born. But his works were so popular that today you will see many card decks and game rule books that bear his name. Right. And the phrase, according to Hoyle, has become proverbial for according to the rules. <laughs> so the 1800 London edition of Hoyle's Games was one of the many posthumous adaptations of his work. And that's when speculation was first included. Mm, okay. So card games were, as you know, very popular pastime for the leisure classes. They appear in all of Austin's novels and with their suits arranged in strict social hierarchies, with careful dynamics of concealing and revealing, and with fortunes at stake, such games are apt symbols for the situation of many of her, her characters. So when I do my Jane Austen seminar at Cal Poly, for each book, I teach the students to play a game featured in that novel. Mm, I love that. That's and fun. Yeah. Oh, my students love it. And we play and then we discuss how that game represents uh, the novel's themes and, and what the playing of it reveals about the characters. So some of the games we play are word games like charades, uh, but most of them are card games. And I always adapt the rules for my class from versions of Hoyle's games. So in my um, article in the MLA Approaches to Teaching, Austin's Mansfield Park, edited by Marsha McClintock Folsom and, and John Wilshire, I include in the appendix rules for how to play speculation, a simplified version. But uh, here's a, a short version. And if you're listening with friends and uh, want to play, it works very well with about four to eight players. Okay. So grab some cards and something that you can use as counters, uh, like coins to wager with. And in my class, I provide my students with facsimile 18th century playing cards. Which is so fun to have like something that looks as authentic from the period. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you can find them on um, gaming companies on the internet. I I got mine from McGregor Historic Games. A lot of them are available because they are used in TV shows and, and movies set in the era. And also historical reenactors love them. And uh, for the counters, in Austin's day, they usually used fish-shaped counters. 
made of ivory, bone, or mother of pearl. They were often made uh, in China. So you might remember from Pride and Prejudice, Lydia exclaiming about all the fish she had won. You're talking about what they used for for game counters. Now, kind of like our our poker chips. And I'm sure there's a good fish and chips joke in there somewhere. (laughs) But in my class, what we use for counters are goldfish crackers. I like it. (laughs) My students love it. and, And some of them do end up eating their winnings. As would I, honestly, right? Yeah, that's great. (laughs) I love that. But so how you play is that, so in your deck of cards, you should remove the jokers. So jokers did not appear until the 1800s. They're not featured in this game. And each player should begin with the same number of fish counters. So I think 10 is a good number. And players should take turn dealing. So at the start of each game, all players ante one fish into the pot and the dealer should ante two. So the dealer has a natural advantage in the game, which is why they they need to wager more. So then a stack of three cards is dealt face down to each player, including the dealer. And these cards must not yet be revealed. That's the part of the game that Lady Bertram just cannot <laughs> figure that one out. <laughs> she keeps trying to look at her cards, but there's no fun in speculating if you already know right. what cards you have. Right. So the dealer then turns up the next card in the deck, and that determines the trump suit or the suit in play. So the player with the highest trump, the highest card in that suit, with ace ranking highest will win the pot for that round. So the turnip card belongs to the dealer. That's why the dealer has to ante a little more. So if it's an ace, the dealer automatically wins the pot. But if the card is not an ace, it still may end up being the highest trump of that round since the other cards have not yet been revealed. So then the other players may speculate or offer to buy it with some of their Ah. fish counters. And the dealer decides if they want to keep this trump card or sell it to the the highest bidder. So as you're offering to buy the card, you need to keep in mind how many fish are in the pot. Mm. So if four people are playing, there's going to be five fish in there. My students start with 10, so they've only got... That's a pretty big pot, but you you don't want to risk too much to win a pot of five fish. And that, that's Mary Crawford's problem. Right. She <laughs> pays, I think, a, a little too high and takes some pretty big risks for the pot. So afterwards, each player, beginning with the one to the left of the dealer or whoever owns the highest trump card if someone else bought it, they turn over the card at the top of their stack. And this continues omitting the player who holds the highest trump until someone else turns over a higher trump card. And then that person may then choose to keep that trump or sell it to the highest bidder. And the more speculating that takes place, the more exciting that the game becomes. And then play continues until all cards have been revealed or until someone turns over an ace of the trump suit and automatically wins the pot. Now, this is an important part of the rules. If an ace is turned over or the game is otherwise won, 
before all the cards have been revealed. The dealt cards are all turned face up before they are discarded so that each player can note which cards ah. are no longer mm. in play. Okay, so if you're counting yes. cards, you can kind of exactly. get really into this. <laughs> exactly. And that is why Fanny is so good mm. at this game. She pays attention. Right. And that's why I believe that Jane Austen was also very good at this game. She had an eye and a capacious memory for detail. But a, a player who can recollect which superior cards of each suit have already appeared will have the advantage of making more informed speculations in future rounds. So then the deck is then passed to the person on the previous dealer's left and a new deal begins. Okay. I like this. There's a lot of maneuvering going on. <laughs> so after like the first person turns over their card, do you speculate on every single card that gets turned over? Or is it just once you get no. back to the to the new Trump card? No, only if it is a card that is higher, higher than the original. Okay. So let's, okay. let's say that the card that the dealer first turns over is the nine of spades. I, I always use that as my example because that card was featured in my favorite movie, Carmen Jones. Oh, nice. But let's say it's the nine of spades. Well, if someone turns up something that's higher, like a jack or a queen or a king or even an ace of hearts... That's no good. Right. It has to be higher than a nine in space. Right. Okay. But if someone has turned over, you know, let's say the jack, queen, king, and ace of hearts, and you remember that, then in a future game, when the ten of hearts comes up, you will be ready to buy it if you can remember right. that the higher cards have already been discarded. Sure. Okay. See, and I, and I think that that's perhaps maybe why Mrs. Lady Bertram does not excel, maybe, at the game. <laughs> you know, not turning over the cards. Makes sense. Yes, yes. When I play with my students, anytime one of them forgets the rules, um, their classmates will say, oh, don't be a Lady Bertram. <laughs> or, my ladyship, please. <laughs> don't look at your cards, my ladyship. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So in the scene at the top of the episode we start to get a sense of the gameplay and how individuals are going to play the game. So again, Lady Bertram, no idea what's going on. Not surprisingly, Fanny picks up the rules in about three minutes. Crawford is still like, no, 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 I'm going to control the game. But later in the chapter, we get a bit more also about how Mary, William, and Edmund are playing the game. Why is it, do you think, that Austin gives us all of these small details about individuals and how they are playing the game? Well, you know, Austin was mistress of characterization. She's very good at showing, not telling, how her characters behave. So how they behave around the card table is a really good indication. And I think she's so especially detailed because, as I will argue, I believe speculation is her very favorite ah, uh, card okay. game. But yes, we find out so much about the character's not only in the way they play, but just in the way that the game is set up. So in the beginning, they're trying to decide who will play what game. And so one group is going to play whist, which can only be played by two partners. And then everyone left over will play another round game and they choose speculation. So the divide between the games might reflect the courtship 
subplots that are always in Austin's fiction. And it might lead to the expectation that Whist, the partner game, will be played by the two married couples, the Bertrands and the Grants, and the speculation by the six single people. Yet Lady Bertram can't choose which game she wants to play. Right. And she asks her husband, which will amuse me more? And Sir Thomas is like, speculation. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) And the narrator observes he was a whist player himself and perhaps might feel that it would not much amuse him to have her for a partner. I love it. He's being strategic right out Mm -hmm. of the gate. I know, before the card games even start. And Mrs. Norris's willingness to be his whist partner also indicates her eagerness to assume a place of authority Mm -hmm. uh, in the Bertram's household. So even the decision of who plays what is important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mrs. Norris loves to play lady of the house. Yes. She loves, yes, she loves to supplant her sister. Well, and then then her being with the kind of more like strategic gameplay table also makes sense that she's going to put herself at that table if at all possible. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Lady Bertram doesn't know how to play speculation, but she casually says, oh, Fanny must teach me, <laughs> you know, making her usual assumption. Her niece will do everything for her. But because Fanny's also a first-time player, that is why Henry volunteers to teach both ladies. Which he's very happy to do. Yes. Mm-hmm. I am here, mm-hmm. your knight in shining armor. <laughs> yes. Yes. And when... When Sir Thomas asked uh, his wife how she's enjoying the game, she says, very entertaining indeed, a very odd game. I do not know what it's all about. I am never to see my cards, and Mr. Crawford does all the rest. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thing that Hoyle is is providing rules on how to play cards and not Lady Bertram. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) The way to play speculation, just don't look at your cards and wait for someone else to do it all for you. (laughs) But also very in keeping with her character. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And again, very much in keeping with Henry Crawford's personality, because he's more than happy to do that. Yes, yes. So Henry is able to basically play Lady Bertram's hand for her as well as his own while he's coaching Fanny. And um, the narrative says he approaches everything with playful impudence. And my students often note that he is an expert player not only at cards, but also as an actor mm-hmm. in the young people's ill-advised attempt to perform the racy play lover's house, yep. but also a player in the modern mm-hmm. sense of having right. dalliances mm-hmm. with uh, many women. Yes, Henry Crawford would say, hey, don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> but he, he's managing three hands at once. And I, I think that kind of points to the love triangle he previously sparked with the, the Bertram's two daughters. That is so funny. Yeah, he manages his card games like he manages his ladies. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and while he's playing, he has set his sights on making Fanny mm-hmm. all for him mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. But Fanny's approach to the game highlights her intelligence as well as her selflessness. So she picks it up very quickly. But she's not that competitive um, about it. Right. And the narrative says Henry had yet to inspirit her play, sharpen her avarice and harden her heart, which especially in any competition with William was a work of some difficulty. (laughs) 
Yeah. So yeah. she does not want to take a single fish right. uh, from, not from William. her beloved brother. Mm-hmm. And you could just, you could totally see Henry being like, okay, you got to do this. You could win. You could win. And she's like, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Back off. I'm playing it the way I want to. <laughs> Uh, and that he can't make Fanny play the way he wants her to play. Yeah, both in the card game and when he is trying yeah. to woo her. Yes. And that's, that speaks so highly of her resolve as a character. Like, her core is quite impressive. Yeah. Ed- Edmund notes that after Fanny has won, she'd much rather the game were, were Williams. He says, poor Fanny, not allowed to cheat herself as she wishes. <laughs> So even though Fanny would would prefer William to win, he's a a less altruistic player of the game. (laughs) And after attempting to buy a queen from his sister without offering half her value, he tries to sell a knave to Mary Crawford at an exorbitant rate. (laughs) And usually when we see William in the novel, the feature that really stands out is his desire to rise from poverty through the ranks of the Navy. And his manner of of mercilessly playing the game to win the most money aligns with that ambition. Yeah, yeah. So when we read in the final volume how William is made second lieutenant, we hear all his thoughts are on his ship, including conjectures how she would be employed, schemes for an action with some superior force, which supposing the first lieutenant out of the way, and William was not very merciful to the first lieutenant, (laughs) was to give himself the next step as soon as possible or speculations upon prize money. So he's just always speculating. This this game (laughs) is very good for him. Absolutely. He's got to make his play. He's got to make that money. So it makes sense that Mm -hmm. that that would be how he plays. Mm -hmm. No, have to admire the come up. So Mary Crawford is also very ambitious. And after she risks everything to buy a single card, she exclaims, there, I will stake my last like a woman of spirit. No cold prudence for me. I'm not born to sit still and do nothing. If I lose the game, it shall not be from not striving for it. Yeah. So, so Mary Crawford is also always striving. Yeah. She, she's striving to lure Edmund away mm-hmm. from his plans of becoming a clergyman and transform him into a fashionable gentleman and, and suitable marriage partner for herself. She's got plans. She's got plans that she's trying to put into action. Yeah. Well, and I, and I like that it's also that she's, she's doing some small digs there. Like, I'm not going to just sit still. It's a very barbed mm-hmm. statement here that it's not it's not just about the cards. There's definitely a subtext to this where she's like, I'm going to risk it all and I'm not going to stay still. I won't stay still. You can't stop me. It's it's a pretty gutsy thing to stay to state. Yeah, that's Mary Crawford. Can't stop. Won't stop. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yes. So, Regulus, in your own work, Speculation in Mansfield Park, you write, quote, The scene concerns some of the novel's central issues, the improvement of estates, decisions about courtship and marriage, the relationship of a clergyman to his parishioners, and the tension between diversion and duty. So, you know, within the context of this game of speculation, how do you see this card game as providing commentary on some of those broader issues beyond just, you know, the the characterizations? Yeah. So the most obvious definition of of speculation and why the game bears that name is it's an undertaking of an enterprising nature, especially one involving 
considerable financial risk on the chance of unusual profit. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about how many of the characters are looking at the opportunity to rise in, in class or, or in rank. And that's always so uh, important uh, to Austin's novels. And I think that that's also something involved in, in just the hierarchical nature of, of card suits. In fact, one potential challenge that my students have when we play with the facsimile cards from the 18th century is that they don't have numbers or letters right. in the corner like our cards do, such as K for King. And a lot of times my students have trouble distinguishing between the Jacks and the Kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, though, that, that that difficulty demonstrates a point about how Austin society was much more attuned than ours to the distinction uh, of rank. Right. In fact, uh, in Austin's day, um, what we call jacks were called knaves. And that older name signifies a servant, uh, a status that players in, in Austin society would see as antithetical to the royal king. But they look alike uh, to my students. In fact, in the 17th century game of all fours, the knave of the trump suit was called the jack, which is how that card eventually got the name Mm, that we use today. And and just as far as this kind of enterprising element of speculation, this gambling game echoes several elements of the narrative that involve economic risk. So the threat to Sir Thomas's fortune comes from some recent losses on his West India estate. Uh, His Antiguan sugar plantation may have become a shakier investment when Britain abolished the slave trade in 1807. Another kind of questionable venture that the novel explores is the improvement of estates, which becomes a fashionable but costly endeavor for the heiress landed gentry. So Henry Crawford's proposals to renovate Edmund's property at Thornton Lacey (laughs) are discussed while they're playing cards. And Henry wants to basically change the orientation of the the whole house. Just turn the whole house around. Not a problem. (laughs) Exactly. But that would be a, a ruinous investment, even for someone with a more comfortable income than a clergyman like Edmund. Another economic venture that the speculation scene highlights is the marriage market. And the card party is the first time that Sir Thomas notices Henry's attentions to Fanny. And although, you know, he's careful to separate himself from people who would make those kind of observations, he's making them and and thinking this might be his niece's chance Mm -hmm. uh, to marry the wealthy man whose uh, attention she has attracted. And just two chapters later, he organizes a ball uh, in Fanny's honor for her formal introduction to society. Uh, And he forces her to participate in what sounds closest to a business venture, what the novel calls the trade of coming out. And then in addition to the economic definition Speculation means intelligent or comprehending vision. So the best players of the game pay careful attention. That is why Fanny is so much better at it mm-hmm. than uh, <laughs> Lady Bertram. And um, you know, Fanny later says of, of Henry's flirtation with the Bertram sisters, I had not been an inattentive observer, 
of what was passing between him and some part of his family in the summer and the autumn. I was quiet, but I was not blind. It's like she, she's very good at comprehensive vision, yeah. which is, is another meaning of speculation and, and what the game requires. She's the only one who seems to be seeing the full big picture. Exactly. Yes, Manny is often on a whole other level than the rest of her family. Now, speculation also refers to the conjectural anticipation of something. So players hang their hopes on the possibility of a winning card. And when the game comes to a close, Mary's agreeable fancies of Edmund as a fashionable spouse are upset by the talk of ordination. The narrative says she's no longer able in the picture she had been forming of a future Thornton to shut out the church and sink the (laughs) clergyman and see only the respectable, elegant, modernized and occasional residence of a man of independent fortune. And a house that has been completely turned as well. (laughs) Yeah. And at this point, the narrator engages in a little game herself, employing wordplay to sum up the situation with the pun all the agreeable of her speculation was over for that hour. Yeah, that, that fantasy bubble has just been burst for her. She took a gamble on the younger son, and it just really did not pay off for her. <laughs> yeah. And lastly, speculation means the contemplation, consideration, or profound study of some subject. And although this definition doesn't seem to apply to the light entertainment of a card game, When whist is over and Sir Thomas wanders over to observe the round game, the conversation suddenly turns to the serious topic of the responsibilities of the clergyman. And that tension between these subjects is captured by Mary's exasperated feeling that, quote, it was time to have done with cards if sermons prevailed. And I think that quote is is so important because There doesn't need to be this strict divide between light diversions and weighty lessons. And I think that that's something that that really comes across in in all of Austen's novels, that ability to use amusing pastimes as a medium to present material weight. And that's why I also think that it is perfect to teach novels with fun card games. (laughs) Right. So it makes sense as a pairing. Absolutely. So, I mean, at this level of detail, we are obviously understanding that Austen is very familiar with the game. She's weaving it into this chapter in some really meaningful ways. So do we have maybe some evidence or or information about how Austen plays speculation in her own life? Because you mentioned earlier that you, you know, you think this might be her favorite card game. Yes, yes. As her correspondence with her sister Cassandra reveals, the game was one that she had a particular uh, affection for. So in a letter to her sister dated the 24th of October, 1808, she describes how she had been attempting to console her two young nephews, George and Edward, a few weeks after the death of their mother Mm. and her sister-in-law, Elizabeth Bridges Knight. And the games were a welcome distraction to the boys. And when she's continuing with the events on the 25th of October, she writes to Cassandra, our evening was equally agreeable in its way. I introduced speculation 
And it was so much approved that we hardly knew how to leave off. Now, later, when she hears that the boys have stopped playing speculation and it has been supplanted by the card game Brag, she playfully writes to Cassandra on the 10th of January, it mortifies me deeply (laughs) because speculation was under my patronage. And after all, what is there so delightful in a pair of royal braggers? It is but three nines or three knaves or a mixture of them. When one comes to reason upon it, it cannot stand its ground against speculation, of which I hope Edward is now convinced. Give my love to him if he is. <laughs> and later, on the 17th of January, when she learns that these fickle boys have also given up on Brett, she pretends that she has just received some verses in an unknown hand and was asked to forward them to her nephew, Edward. And the poem reads, Alas, poor brag, thou boastful game, what now avails thine empty name? What now thy more distinguished fame? My day is o'er, and thine the same. For thou, like me, art thrown aside at Godmersham this Christmas tide. And now, across the table wide, each game, save brag or speck, is tried. Such is the mild ejaculation of tender-hearted speculation. (laughs) I love this poem. I mean, she's a mistress of wordplay, card play. And her personification of of speculation in that poem as tenderhearted emphasizes, I think, the soft spot that the game holds in her heart because she associates it with her beloved nephews. And I, I think that that's why she singles it out for special attention when she begins composing Mansfield Park a a few years later. That is such a sweet anecdote to make, to have that, that speculation is so clearly, I love, I love, she said it's a game under her own patronage, but, but that it's, Mm -hmm. that it's so deeply entrenched in her relationship with her nephews. That is, that's so adorable. I just, I love everything about that. Yeah. Yeah. She began writing Mansfield Park just shortly after uh, in 1811. And I like the way that she describes speculation as tenderhearted, because that's very similar to how Fanny's manner Mm. of playing the game is described when she doesn't want to be, you know, too aggressively competitive. Oh, speculation. We all need to get ourselves our reproduction cards and a bag of goldfish and have a great (laughs) time. And play the tenderhearted game. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're listening to the podcast, it's time to call up some of your friends, swing by the store, grab a bag of goldfish, you know, you're going to have a great time. Yes, absolutely. That's what I'm going to do tonight. <laughs> I almost like the idea. I feel like you could kind of do, it would be like a fun Jane Austen evening is to play speculation, but sort of assign players roles, like almost like a oh, murder mystery so you party. you have to play it like the character. Yeah, so like you mm-hmm. need to play it like your Fanny. You need mm-hmm. to play this like your Mary. Great party idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Regulus, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the game of speculation. Where can our listeners learn more about your projects and everything that you've got going on? Well, I keep my um, faculty webpage relatively up to date uh, about what I'm working on. So Listeners can check that out at english.calpoly.edu backslash faculty backslash Allen. And I appreciate your uh, mentioning my book project, Vacant Spaces. So hope to be uh, wrapping that up soon and uh, shopping it around to publishers. 
And that book, because it's on representations of African women, does not include a discussion of Mansfield Park, but it does include Miss Lamb, Austin's biracial heiress from her unfinished work, Sanditon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as an African-American and I'm part of an audience of, of Black Austin lovers, I wish that she had finished that book so we could see what happens with Miss Lamb. Right. But, you know, luckily we have writers and uh, TV and movie makers to continue her, her story for us. And I also am pretty involved with my regional society, Jasna Southwest. So you can check out their website on jasnasw.com. I sometimes give talks for them, often about inclusive Austin and how Austin's work is, is being appreciated by an even wider and more diverse audience than ever. Yeah. And uh, lastly, I'd, I'd like to talk about my regional society, Wessex, the Western Society of 18th Century Studies. So our website is WSECS, Wessex.org. And we have a conference almost every year on the President's Day holiday weekend. It features all kinds of subjects on long 18th century, but we often have some Jane Austen panels. So I, I love regional societies because they're often you know, smaller and uh, less expensive and thus more accessible and, and inclusive. And as you can probably tell, one of my greatest passions is making Austin studies and long 18th century studies in general more inclusive. I love that. That's great. Well, thank you again for joining us for this discussion. Thank you again for having me. This was so much fun. It was an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Dr. Regulus Allen for joining us for this episode. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can always check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be talking about Lucy's filigree work. Thanks for listening. 